0: from what we hear and read constantly bombarded on the internet, uh, things we've learned in college, those nagging thoughts that come inspired by the enemy enemy of our souls that say, how do you know this is all true? Why is Christianity different from all the other religions? And what about science? Hasn't evolution proved that God doesn't exist, or maybe he's not necessary because the world came into existence on its own through evolution? Kind of like somebody said, from goo to you by way of the zoo. So this area became personal to me when I started working in my field of science. So I'm a a geologist and I'm a Christian. And I got questions early in my career. Questions like, you really believe in knowing the ark? And how do you explain dinosaurs? And the world was created in six days? Really? So it forced me to look ...that ways to answer these kind of questions. At first I thought, oh no, maybe maybe the Bible isn't trustworthy. Maybe it's not reliable. But the questions caused me to dig deeper... ...to be ready to give reasons for my hope. So much depends on the reliability of the Bible. If it's not true, then how can we know who God is? And who we are and why we're here? If the Bible is full of errors, then how can we have assurance... ...that the resurrection really happened? And which is a big deal, as the Apostle Paul says. He says, if Christ didn't raise, we are still in our sin. Let's go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? So how have we been doing to be ready to give reasons for our hope? You know, something we've been saying, and this is real alarming, and it really bothers me. We have seven kids, my wife Mimi and I, we have seven kids and 15 grandkids, two on the way. It's amazing that I even have time to get up here, right? So. <laughs> Something we've been seeing, though, for a while is the departure of our young people from the church. Statistics tell us that many surveyed fall under the category of what they call nuns. And that's not a Catholic term. That's a it means religiously unaffiliated. Others, even those brought up in the church, become atheist or agnostic. In a recent Pew Research study, over 60 percent of young people are leaving the church when they go to college. And maybe some of us have been affected by that in our own families. What does the research reveal as to the main questions? Words that came up in the survey like science, common sense, logic, or the lack of evidence. were reasons why young people are departing from the faith. Telling people, oh, just trust Jesus, even though that's a true statement, it may not be enough. Mark Twain, in his own unique way, in a sarcastic way, said faith is believing in something you know ain't true. And this brings us to our text today, 1 Peter 3.15. And let's read that together. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Peter tells us the believers here to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have. These Christians just quickly were being persecuted for their faith. They were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Extreme persecution for their faith. This word defense, a reasonable answer is where we get the word apology. And I remember the first time I said heard this. It's like in the, in the field of apologetics, which I'll get into shortly. Not thinking what you're thinking, maybe, and what I thought, not apologizing, but we're defending. It's a reasoned defense of our faith. You can picture this language is the picture, the word picture, of a courtroom. It's like a defense attorney giving a verbal defense for his client that's been charged with something. So a word about apologetics, which comes from this word apologia, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so I... I may have butchered that, but the field of apologetics addresses such things as the existence and nature of God, the problem of evil and suffering, the resurrection of Jesus and the reliability of Scripture, to name a few. And I want to whet your appetite talking about spending a little time with this last one, the reliability of Scripture, because if the Scriptures aren't true, then we have no foundation to stand on. So before we jump in, I want to make sure and make one qualifying statement. We are not saved by reason. OK, we know we are saved by grace through faith. It's the work of God in, in every heart that he comes in. It's, a, it's salvation is of the Lord. We respond to that call. We hear his voice. The Holy Spirit convicts us. But that doesn't mean we don't use our minds. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say? And he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting The Ten Commandments, the first commandment, Jesus said to love God with all your hearts, with all your souls and with all of your minds. Our minds are important and a gift from God. But let's be careful to avoid the trap that many fall into. And I've done it myself many times, which is relying on reason alone apart from God's revelation of himself to us. We cannot know anything about God in truth unless he opens our eyes to see. Paul talks about this, doesn't he, in First Corinthians? He says the natural man does not accept or is able even to see the things of God, to understand he thinks they are foolishness. And how many times do, do I talk about things at work and just, I'm, I think I'm at church, right? I'm with church folk, and I'll just throw something out there. And it's like a deer in headlights. Have you guys ever had that experience? It's like... Oh, I had this great time at church, the Lord was speaking, or however, I I try not to do too much Christianese, but sometimes it just kind of, I'm excited. And I notice this like, and then finally it dawns on me, this person doesn't know the Lord. They don't understand the things that God has opened my eyes to see, and has opened our eyes to see. What a gift that God's given us for eyes to see truth, for eyes to see Christ the way he really is. But we know for ourselves, and for what we are seeing with our young people, that our minds do matter. As the saying goes, the heart will not rejoice in what the mind knows is not true. And then that kind of what Twain was getting at, right? Faith is believing something we know just ain't true. So I want to focus on the Bible and why it's reliable for three main reasons. And every pastor and every sermon has three main reasons, right? He has three points, right? <laughs> Why of all the books ever written in its class, is is the Bible written, is in a class all by itself? Or to say it another way, the Bible is unique. So with that, the Bible is unique in three ways. It's unique in its production, in its preservation, and its proclamation. So first, let's look at production, or the way it was compiled and put together. The Bible is harmonious and self-consistent with one major theme. Written over 1,600 years, over 40 generations, by 40 authors from every walk of life, kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, herdsmen, poets, and scholars. It was written in different places, the wilderness, in a dungeon, in the country, in palaces, and even inside prison walls. Written in three con- on three continents, Asia, Africa, Europe, in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It addresses many controversial subjects, yet with one Harmony and continuity from Genesis to Revelation. And what is that grand overarching theme? The story of God and his plan to bring fallen humanity back to himself. It's as if one author worked through many writers to communicate one central message. So we see the Bible is unique in its production. It's also unique in its preservation And this really gets me excited in terms of manuscript data. Okay, I I haven't read a lot of man. I've seen a lot, but there's so much manuscript information out there. We don't have the original autographs, but we have copies really close to the original autographs. So the Bible has been well preserved. The quality and quantity and time span of the biblical manuscripts set it apart from all ancient literature. Dr. Dan Wallace of uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, and he's out there on YouTube. He's really a neat guy. He looks like this California dude, but he's a Ph.D. from Dallas Theological. And he's got he's executive director of the Center for New Testament Manuscripts. He calls the manuscript data an embarrassment of riches. We have so many. We have over 5,600 Greek New Testament manuscripts. We have over 10,000 Latin manuscripts and over 5,000 manuscripts in other versions, in Aramaic and Syriac. So we have over 20,000 manuscripts of the New Testament dating back. There's one of John, a fragment of John. This was within 100 years of the original writing. So what's the closest to that in ancient literature? The closest to that is Homer's Iliad. Compared to 20,000, there's 643. Compared to 100 years within 100 years of copy to, to original, 500 years. That's the best one ancient manuscripts have, other secular writing between copy and original. There's one, and one way to put it, to compare it with all the ancient literature. If you stack all the New Testament manuscripts up, they would go over a mile high. All other ancient manuscripts combined is around all combined is around four feet high. We have over a thousand times more data to support the New Testament in its manuscript data. So this is important, guys, to think about this. The number of copies, the time span between the copy and the original gives us confidence that what we have in our hands is what God gave to the writers of Scripture. And this is called textual criticism. And basically what you have, if you have one or two copies uh, and you've got a discrepancy, well, how are you going to figure this out? But if you've got a multiplicity. Of manuscripts to compare the same text, you can, it's more likely you can get back to what was originally written. And the time span, the shorter the time span, the less time you have for things to come in and distort and corrupt. And everything that we see in terms of textual variance, like words that are different, there's not anything that changes a, a point of doctrine. It's like spelling, it's like typos, it's like, you know, little things that 99% of it is just things like that. Now, the Burt Er, the Bart Ehrmans of the world would like to make you think that there's all these errors, but there are, there are textual variants because there's things that happen in terms of the copying, but not one of them affects a point of doctrine. So we have looked at the Bible being unique in its production and preservation. Now let's look at the Bible's proclamations. What it says about itself, what it claims, what does the Bible claim for itself? Well, the Bible from beginning in claims to be the very word of God. And we see this, don't we, in the Old Testament over and over from Genesis to Revelation. We see God speaking directly to his people and to the world. Phrases like the Lord said or the word of the Lord came. Guess how many times that's used? That type of phraseology in the Old Testament. Thirty eight hundred and eight times. Thirty eight hundred times. Over thirty eight hundred times. The word of the Lord came or thus saith the Lord it's claiming that it's god-breathed. Paul inspired by the holy spirit wrote, all scripture is god-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Peter said that the scripture is not man's thoughts or opinions. He said that they the apostles didn't follow cleverly devised stories or myths, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's so important in a court of law. What do you need? You need eyewitness testimony. And and one is good, but more than one is even better. Cooperating evidence. This is what we have. We have multiple witnesses testifying to the same events that they saw Jesus, even post-resurrection appearances. And that would be a whole nother topic, a whole other day to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all the interest groups and to bring it into a court of law and weigh the evidence out. It's a beautiful thing. There's a book called Who Moved the Stone by a guy named Frank Morrison. And I used to read it every Easter. And he's a British uh, journalist, kind of like Lee Strobel. Same kind of thing. The you know, Case for Christ. And uh, he, a lot of these people just set out to prove it wrong. And they bring all the data in like a lawyer would. And they, they get converted because the data supports. The eyewitness accounts support. It's hard to refute. And Peter goes on to say that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. It's like, you know, well, that's your truth. That's my truth. No, but if this is the word of God, I've, I've always thought about writing a book and somebody already beat me to it. I think it was Hank Hanegraaff or somebody one of the Bible Answer Man. There's two basic questions that I come up with in life and my thinking. Number one, I think most people would acknowledge there is a God. Some wouldn't. There's a new movement of atheists. But but for those that acknowledge God, God exists. OK, if he exists, then has he spoken? And if he's spoken, then what has he said? Those are the two, basic ways. you know, the old commercials, E.F. Hutton, remember E.F. Hutton, when E.F. Hutton talks, and they were in the, somebody's eating dinner and said, well, my financial advisor is E.F. Hutton, and then everybody in the restaurant turns around. Well, when God speaks, we need to turn around and pay attention, don't we? The authority of God. The one that created the universe. The scriptures did not originate in the mind or will of man, but prophets, as Peter said, through, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I want to spend a second or two on the carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is talking about the dual authorship of scripture. This picture is the, this imagery of carried along. These men that were writing the scriptures. It's a picture of like a boat, the way a boat is moved along with the wind hitting the sails. This is the picture of how men were inspired to write God's words. God superintended without making men robots. God making them move along and directed what they wrote as they used their own language, their own experience, and their own background. And you can look at Luke. He's a doctor, right? He's a very meticulous, kind of thorough, scientific guy. And when he wrote his gospel, it says, writing in the book uh, of Acts, that he had chronicled all that Jesus did and said in his gospel, he said through careful investigation, he talked with the eyewitnesses to get a, a, an accurate account of what happened in the life of Jesus. And he was not there, but he was, remember, with, with Paul. He was a, 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 a cohort. He followed Paul around on his missionary journeys. But he talked with eyewitnesses. He was like an investigative reporter. And if you look at Luke and the way he writes and the names he lists and the, and the places he lives, it's almost like he's challenging you to say, check me out. Check me out that this man was not in power, and this man was in this position of power, and this it was to happen in this place, in this locale. In fact, secular authors dating back say that Luke is a historian, of the, a first-rate historian. So in Acts, Luke goes on. Luke continues his reporting on Jesus and his life by saying, Jesus proved he was the Messiah through his resurrection and many infallible proofs. Remember how many people saw him? Mary The the two, the twelve, and finally the five hundred saw him before, before he ascended. So what we see in all this is a book that claims divine authorship inspired by men writing God's words and eyewitnesses reporting of what they heard and saw firsthand. So in a courtroom, an eyewitness can give the most powerful testimony of events, especially if there's more than one, right? And that's what we have. So under proclamation, I want to quickly add one thing, and we could talk about this in its own topic. But archaeology, okay? And I put this under proclamation because uh, there's a book written called "The Stones Speak" or the, "The Stones Declare." And so the rocks continue to speak, okay? I could spend a lot of time here, but I'll just say that there has not been one discovery that contradicts the scriptures in terms of accuracy. In fact, all finds have only confirmed the Bible's actually as a historical document. Nelson Gluck was a renowned Jewish archaeologist, an American rabbi, and he said, he quoted, this is his quote, he says, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted or contradicted a biblical reference. And this man was responsible for discovering in in the Middle East 1,500 archaeological sites related to the Bible. So for sake of time, I want to pick just one specific archaeological discovery and confirmation for the old, and then a general one for the new. So in the old, now this is really neat. I love this. So in Joshua 6:20, you know, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, right? And and when you guys read read these words and really focus, we read too fast, okay? So I've read this how many times in my life, and it's like I missed this little phrase here. It's so important in this case important archaeologists where it says we read that the city walls of jericho fell down flat or they fell out or flat so the people could go in and capture the city well this was excavated in the 1930s excavation confirmed that the walls did fall flat well why is this unusual well according to archaeologists and structural engineers or whatever that walls do not typically fall flat they fall inward so the archaeologists that found this were amazed. They thought something or someone had to cause the walls to do something so unusual. It just amazed the archaeologists when they found it that way. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, the, in, in a general way, in the book of Acts, there are many cities that are mentioned and most of them have been confirmed by archaeology. In fact, as a result, the journeys of Paul can be accurately traced. First, second, and third missionary journeys. So considering these three reasons... The Bible's uniqueness and its production, and its preservation, and its proclamation. And keep in mind, I've just touched the surface here for sake of time. What does this lead to? What does this lead to? Why is it important that the Bible is accurate? The authority of Scripture and its power. If this book we have in our hands is truly from the mouth of God as it claims, we have spiritual dynamite. We have power. We have the words of the God who created the universe by the same word. Genesis 1 says God spoke the world into existence out of nothing. We walk through the days, right? Light, night, day, land, sky, oceans, rivers, plants, the sun, the moon, fish, birds, cattle. Finally, man and woman out of the dust of the ground by the spoken word of God. Exhaled. Out of the voice of the mouth of God. All of creation came from the power of God's spoken word. The same word that we have today in our Bibles and what we're talking about this morning. Do you ever think about it that way? Do you ever think about what you have in your hands when you open the word of God? The Bible? Do you think about the power it can change? It could take a Saul of Tarsus killing and persecuting Christians and changing him into Paul the apostle. But willing to die for the very people that he was killing. He got knocked off his donkey, right? By Jesus. And he heard the verse, voice of God directly to him. It says, Saul, I've called you. I've, I've, and he said, I, I was revealed to Jesus revealed himself to me in the womb, in my heart. He had called the man. And he spoke that word to Saul and he did a 180. How many of us in this room have heard the voice of God in our lives and have done a 180? I know I have. I was—I hated to read books. I think I read one book in high school, literally. And I kind of cheated on the book report because I didn't read the end of it. And my sister loved science fiction. It was actually Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes. <laughs> what a book, right? And I, did, I looked at Clip Notes, but I asked my sister, well, how does this end? I hated to read. But when I turned 20 and I went to California from Oklahoma and I started going to a church and I started hearing the word of God taught Verse by verse, expositional teaching. And God got a hold of my heart. And guess what? I've got a myriad of books. A lot of them are on apologetics because I'm a scientist. A lot of them are on theology. And I end up going to seminary because God got a hold of my heart. He changed me. Where I hated to read, now I love to read. And there's no explanation for that. Just like there's no explanation to explain Saul of Tarsus. From a persecutor of the church to the the greatest apostle that ever lived that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Except something happened. God engaged him personally. And he spoke the word to Paul and says, this is the plan I have for you. And he's speaking to you today. He's got a plan for your life. He's made you uniquely for a reason. And he will reveal it to you if you seek him for it. So have you experienced the power of God in your life? Have you seen in your life that through God's word and the Bible, you have sensed and known that God loves you, that he wants to know you and he wants to show himself to you? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, as Paul wrote. That's why Paul could say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It has power to save everyone who believes. So how do we apply all this? Well, I see two main ways for our personal assurance and sharing our faith in in evangelism. So let's look at that for a minute. The New Testament writers are all about assurance. John said in his gospel that the main reason, if you read at the end of that gospel, he gives you the reason he wrote the book, the gospel, the good news. He said he wrote it so that Christians may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote the gospel. So we could believe, we could know, we could hear the voice of God and the word of God to us. That so we could know God. God has gone to such extreme to reveal himself to us. I've got two sons and now we've got together, we've got four sons and now I've got, how many, grand, I lose track, how many grandsons? We've got 15, seven grandsons, eight grandsons. I wouldn't give one of them up for my enemy. I wouldn't. But while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. What love God has for us. To give his son for us. Me shaking my fist at God. And yet he said, I'm going to give my son for you. To pay the price that you deserve. To take the punishment that you deserve. So that you can know me. That you could be with me forever. And fellowship with me. And what is amazing. Is in the Old Testament it called Abraham God's friend? You know what Jesus says to us in the New Testament? He says, I don't call you just casual acquaintances, I call you friends. Do you realize that God calls you his friend because of Christ? That you've been invited, you've been brought into his family, you've been adopted don 't think we think about that enough, who we are and, and what God has done in our lives, and I think the more we think about it and realize that this power this this life that's come in, this relationship it's going to be hard to keep our mouths shut. You know, I love this little lady right here, and you know when we first met, and you know we've been married twenty one years and I was annoying. I was obnoxious because I wanted to talk about her all the time. It's that love relationship. When you fall in love with Jesus or when you realize how much he loves you, you're going to want to talk about him. You're going to want to talk about him. So when John the Baptist was doubting in the dungeon, and this is where Jesus is so sweet, okay? and we all have our dungeons where we doubt, right? And he was getting ready to get his head cut off, okay? And he's the one, remember, that said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knew for sure that this was the Lamb of God he was waiting for. The Jewish Israelites were waiting. Their whole history was about the coming Messiah. And yet when he was in the dungeon, guess what happened? He started doubting. And what did he do? He sent some disciples to to Jesus To say, are you the one or should we look for another? And what did Jesus say? What did he do? So sweet. He quoted a prophecy of the Messiah in the Old Testament. He spoke John's language. He didn't say just believe. He gave him evidence. He said he gave him a reason to believe. He said. To the disciples, go tell John what you have seen, what you have heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the mute sing for joy. Isaiah 35. Can you imagine John in the dungeon hearing those words, those messianic prophecy words? And what John was saying at that point in the midst of his depression and knowing that now he's probably going to give his life for this man. This is the one. I can die in peace. This is the one. I was the forerunner talked about in the Old Testament. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. <laughs> and Jesus wants us like John to be assured of our faith in him. And we and as we read his word and ask questions, the Holy Spirit will lead us into truth. He will. He'll lead us into truth. That's what he promised. And Jesus said, it's good that I go, because the one that comes after me, he is like unto me, but he will reveal all things I've said to you, and he will bear witness of me. The Spirit always points to Jesus. He doesn't draw attention to himself. He points to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold your Savior. So we can use this in terms of personal assurance and we can also use it in the second way is to share a faith. So in, people have really good questions, but guess what? We have great answers of the greatest questions that someone can ask you. What's your life about on the earth and what's your life going to be about after you're here? Life after death. These are really great questions but really great answers that we have being ready to give reasons can remove roadblocks to faith apologetics can be used as a pre-evangelism tool sometimes people just don't want to hear the gospel they've been burned in church they've been in toxic faith communities legalism um i've ran across so many pastors kids that are just totally off the rails and and it was just toxic and I, and unless I sit there and listen to them and, and not prejudge them, and some of these stories are heartbreaking. But we need to listen to people and see what these roadblocks to faith are. Some are intellectual, some are emotional, some are volitional. Some just love their sin. Like Jesus said, you love your sin and you will not walk out of the dark and come to the light. You love your sin more than, than righteousness and God. And you know what you need? You need to speak truth. <laughs> the sinner's ways are hard. And there is a judgment coming. It says they even snatched them out of the fire. But then you need to comfort others. People that have been burned, people that have been hurt, people that have been disappointed. People have been burned by bad teaching. The faith movement, the, you know, it's horrible that they've railroaded that word. That's a great word. But the name and claim it, such a toxic teaching. That people have been burned by. Because what happens when the life, bad things happen? Well, it's your fault. Or, it's God's fault. But you know what? God allowed bad things in our lives for good reasons. I don't know how many things I've gone through at the time. I don't want to go through this, God. But He says, lo, though you walk through the valley of shadow death, I will be with you. Like, was it, uh, the old singer, uh, Andre Crouch, if I never had a problem, I'd never know that God could solve them. God reveals himself in the valley. I grew up in Arkansas, Oklahoma. I remember thinking, I like to be up on the mountain. I like to build my house up on a mountain. But guess where you go when you want to plant? You don't go up on the mountain. You go in the valley. Why? Because it's the richest soil. Think about we're growing, right, in our faith. Where's God going to take us? I love the mountaintop. But guess where God takes you a lot of times? He takes you to the valley. The richest soil is there. And you will grow the most when you're dependent upon God. And he's all you have. He turns your face to the wall, as that king did. And when your face is against the wall, where are you looking? You, go, you can only look one direction. You can only look up. And God, out of his great mercy and love, he puts our face to the wall sometimes. And he's done me that way. Depression, panic attacks. I, used, I couldn't even stand up here 20 years ago. I couldn't sit in a meeting thinking I was going to pass out. And it was all anxiety related. But God used it to turn my eyes and my heart to him as my only source of help. Ultimately, no man could help me. That is a work of grace in your life. Because we want, to, we want to focus ourselves on ourselves and our solutions, don't we? And thank God that He's brought things in my life that I knew that unless God showed up, I was going under, like the psalmist said. So He calmed the doubts of John. Jesus gave John reasons to believe he was the Savior. 1 Peter 3.15 has one last thing to give us as, as, as how we go. Be ready, be gentle, and be respectful. Be ready with a heart like Jesus. Compassionate and kind, never forgetting where you have come from and what God has saved us from. I've heard it said there's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That humble heart. God, be ready with a mind prepared to share what you know and experience and what God has taught you in the Word. Through reading and spending time with him. Being like Mary. You know, so many of us want to be like Martha, don't we? And Martha was so mad at Mary. And she was mad at Jesus for letting her sit there and listen to Mary while all this work was needing to be done. Don't we do that? We just, we're just so busy with everything. But what did Jesus say? Mary has, he said, back off. Okay, in our vernacular, right? Back off, Martha. Mary has chosen that one thing that cannot be taken from her sitting at the feet of jesus hearing his words now hopefully she got up and worked after that (laughs) but she found the first thing and the most important thing sitting at the feet of jesus and hopefully after today uh, be a little inspired to better equip yourself to be ready to give a reason for your hope so finally be prayerful god changes the heart only god the creator of light can give light only the God of the creator of light can give light. God does hear our prayers, especially the prayer of a humble and dependent heart when we go. We don't have to be experts, but we can further equip ourselves, can't we? To be ready to give a reason. We are called to witness. Now, what is a witness? What we, what we know? What, what, is, what does a witness do? When you stand up and put their hand up, put their hand on the Bible. I think they still do that, right? Um, they say, what I've seen, what I've experienced. So in a courtroom... We are not the judge, only God is. We are not the defense attorney or the prosecutor. We are called to be a witness. What I know is the man in John 9, when they were trying to berate him about this man born blind, and he said, Well, I don't know. Uh, they were trying to say he was a sinner because he healed on the Sabbath. And he goes, Okay, I don't know about that. But what I do know is I was born blind, and now I see. <laughs> he was witnessing. Of what he knew and what he experienced and what God had done in his life. Jesus said to ask the Lord of the harvest for laborers. Will you join me in being a laborer in God's harvest? Jesus said, behold, look at the fields. They're white. There's people out there. There's people in this school. Thank God what he's doing in this church. Through reaching the kids in our schools here. Oh my, the the harvest is white, but the laborers are few. He's calling us to join him. And it's harvest for lost souls in your workplace, at school, with your family in our community. So finally, to conclude and land this thing, last but not least, and this is I have to be careful. I get super excited about this, about Messianic prophecies. We know that the Bible is the word of God because Jesus, the son of God, put his stamp on it. Jesus affirmed its authority, its reliability, its historical accuracy, its factualness, its inerrancy, and its infallibility. He affirmed people in the Old Testament like Adam and Eve. He spoke of them. He spoke of Noah and the ark and the flood. He spoke of Jonah and the whale, which as a geologist, they look at me like, really, you believe in that? Actually, in the 1800s, there was a guy uh, discovered off the eastern coast or the west coast of uh, England. And he'd been in a big, he he got swallowed by a big sperm whale. He was in there like two days. And they, they cut the fish open, and there was this guy. And he looks like an albino because of all the acid that just bleached his skin. But he was alive. Those are just little tidbits that, as a geologist, right? I, I don't know. Um, and think about this. So he affirmed the Old Testament, the characters of the Old. People like Adam and Eve, Noah, Jonah, Abraham. But think about this, guys. This is really exciting. In the New Testament, Jesus said something very important. He promised the apostles the New Testament. And think about these two scriptures. These are very important. These are very important. John 14, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come. What's he going to do? What's his main thing he's going to do when the Holy Spirit comes? He will teach you all things and he will remind you of everything I've said to you. Recall. The Holy Spirit will bring it back to remembrance to the apostles who are going to write the chronicles of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the commands of Jesus. Jesus promised that he would do that. What else would he do in John 16, 13? It says the spirit of truth will come. And said Jesus said and he will guide you into all truth. You will have a built-in discerner of what is true and what's false. What's true doctrine was false. And these are the writers that wrote the New Testament. So my brothers and sisters this morning, we have the word of God today. I guess that's the point. I hope I'm driving And through its production, preservation, proclamation, as I close, I have one last thing, and I already alluded to it, but here it is. Peter talks about it, a sure word of prophecy. And when he said this in context, he said, we saw Jesus, the three of us, James and John and Peter, on the Holy Mount, right? They saw him in his glory. The glory was pulled back. The glory of Jesus was revealed for that short Period of time on the mount that so they could see him with Moses and Elijah, the way his pre-incarnate existence with the father in heaven, in his glory, because that was shrouded. Right. Because he took on the form of a servant. And in the context of that, what did Peter say? We have, even though we've seen this, right, we have a more we have a sure word of prophecy, prophecy to undergird all of that. And what is that prophecy in the Old Testament? We'll take a ride with me really quick. It's going to go fast. OK. This word tells us from beginning in Genesis there would be one who would come, who'd crush the head of the serpent, Genesis three fifteen. He would be born of a virgin, Isaiah seven fourteen, the seed of Abraham, Genesis twenty two eighteen. The tribe of Judah, Genesis forty nine, ten, family line of Jesse, Isaiah 11.1. 1. born in Bethlehem, Micah five two, preceded by a messenger, Isaiah forty three, entered Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, Zechariah nine nine, stole for thirty pieces of silver, Zechariah eleven, wounded and bruised, Isaiah fifty three five, crucified with thieves, Isaiah forty three twelve. Hands and feet pierced, Psalm 22, before crucifixion was ever known about, before the Romans existed. Buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53. Raised from the dead in Psalm 16. Written, all of these written hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up. And I've only given you 14 prophecies about Messiah. There's over 300. Can I get a shout on that? (laughs) I know we're Baptists, right? God's word is reliable and true, and you could take it to the bank. And he has given and taken great care to make sure that what you read in the Bible today is the word of God to you. God breathed, praise God for his superintending and overseeing power that he's kept his word. Because you know why? Because the message is so important. He has guarded this word. He's protected it. He superintended it. And don't you think that God can do that? Don't you think he can do that? In spite of human frailty, God can do anything. I'm always amazed. It's like, well, we've, we doubt miracles. Well, look at everything around you. Did it just come from nothing? No. Something doesn't come from Nothing. The voice of God that says, I've come to give you that you may have life. I've come to pay the price for your sin by shedding my blood on the cross for you and me. If you are a Christian today, rest assured, God has given you his word. Trust and rest in it today and go out and proclaim this word, this powerful word. If you don't know Jesus, will you turn to him today? Take him at his word. Confess him as Lord. Believe in your heart. This God-given faith that he will give you and that Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is Savior, raised from the dead. The Bible, God's word, is reliable and it is true. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much today for your word. God, thank you that we can put our full weight. On what you've said, when we read the words of Scripture, God, we can know that you're speaking. These words are alive, it says. They're sharper than any two-edged sword. Discerning between soul and spirit. It's able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. And it's also able to reveal what's in our hearts to the point where we can see ourselves for who we are. We are sinners in need of a Savior, God. And we're believers in need of assurance that you are who you say you are. That you are here with us, you said that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will not will leave will, will be fulfilled. Every jot, every tittle, every little letter, every little swish of the pen will be fulfilled. But also said that you, God, you said that you would never leave us or forsake us. You are here with us today. You're speaking your words to us, Lord. Words of power, words of comfort, words of conviction, Lord. We receive your word today. We thank you, God for your Son, for his precious blood that was shed on the cross for each one of us. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.